today. Hey, I just want to share as kind of an intro. Uh, part of today, today is Family Sunday already, um, but part of the reason we wanted to try something different today is because uh, the members of our, our church, we've been uh, wrestling together uh, with just kind of with the direction of what we want to do with Little Sprouts. Our church has grown a lot this last year. We have a lot of new babies. And we're trying to figure out, man, do we expand downstairs to serve all of the kids that we have? Or are we able to serve some of our older kids better by bringing them into the service and figuring out how to do a gathering in a way that incorporates them more? So we've been meeting, we've been talking about this, we've been allowing people to provide feedback, and we're just wrestling through that right now. Today was an opportunity for us to just kind of say, what could this look like, potentially? So if you're a member here, uh, I just ask you to continue providing your input, your feedback, as we're going to continue to discuss um, the direction we go. If you're not a member here, uh, would you just pray for, continue to pray for wisdom and guidance as we wrestle through um, things like this? This morning, uh, we are going to continue our series in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we are going to be looking at the last half of Hebrews chapter 2. If you were with us last week, Brandon preached through the first part of Hebrews 2. And in that text, we were reminded that Christ tasted death for everyone. In the second half of Hebrews 2 today, we're going to learn what the phrase tasted death for everyone actually means. We're going to learn what was required of Christ and what is the benefit for us who are his. So I'm going to pray and then we'll dive in to um, verse 10. Lord, thank you for this day. I specifically on this family Sunday, thank you for our kids. Lord, I uh, ask that uh, the work that you do through Rooted, Rooted Church might outlive all of us um, through the children that are part of this church. Um, Lord, I ask that uh, the seeds that uh, we plant in the lives of these children would be watered by you and that they would grow into strong gospel oaks, that they would be men and women who testify of you faithfully in their generation and all that they say and do. Lord, help us to equip parents and each person here um, to be the primary disciple makers of these kids around the kitchen table and in all uh, the different aspects of their life. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Lord, would you use your word um, even uh, to do this work today, both in our children and in us for your glory and our good. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to start in verse 10. And I want to start by just considering for a moment the first six words that Alex read to you. For it was fitting that he, here at the beginning of our text today, we see that he is the Father. And in these words, we see the Trinity at work. The Father, Son, and Spirit are one in their work of gospel renewal, yet they each play a distinct role in the economy of grace. The Father and Son share this very same will. We see that in the term, it was fitting. It was fitting that the Father would send the Son and that the Father would ultimately, for a moment, forsake the Son for the good of mankind. This is love with a cost. It was fitting that love would be costly because make no mistake, there is no other kind of love except for the love that costs something. To love someone or something, whether that be a child or a spouse or a church, one must be willing to sacrifice themselves for that people. David says this in Samuel 24, 24, nor will I offer offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. It was fitting that the love displayed through the gospel would be a love that would be costly. 
It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The one who spoke creation into existence is the same one who set forth from the beginning a plan to rescue his creation from itself. This story of our rescue is called the gospel. And here in this very first sentence, verse 10, which is just loaded with gospel truth, we see the gospel summarized in the term in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Many sons and daughters were brought to glory through the gospel, through the truth that God so loved his son, he sent him to live a perfect life and die a brutal death so that there would no longer be condemnation for the sons and daughters of God, but everlasting joy in Christ. Jesus Christ came to do many things. He redeemed sinners. He saved sinful humanity. He forgave sin. He bestowed righteousness upon us. Yet all of this is summarized here in this verse. We, the sons and daughters of God, have been adopted into glory through Jesus Christ. Through the gospel, we are no longer simply believers, but believers have been transformed into the children of God, the brothers and sisters of Christ We are a family in the truest and most divine sense of the word. That's why when we identify who we are, we start with that term. We are a family of missionary disciples. And if you take away that family element, you're missing the whole point of what has transpired through the gospel. And this magnificent reality is true because the founder of our salvation was made perfect through suffering. I want to take a minute this morning to just camp here on this phrase because we have a long history of getting hung up right here. Folks were pretty excited that Jesus showed up, that he was on the scene. Not everybody was excited, of course. There were those who had power to lose. They weren't excited. But most people, the more they were around Jesus, the more they saw They were pretty excited. They had spent their whole lives hearing stories about the Messiah that was coming. Their parents and their grandparents had heard these stories. So there began to be this anticipation, could this really be him? And the more they saw of him, the more it became clear that this seems to be the Messiah we've waited for. And their thought process is like, finally, finally it's time to take back that which is ours, to see evil overthrown, for the Messiah to take his throne and overthrow all of these people that have oppressed us and took advantage of us. But Jesus had a different plan. Jesus had a plan that was very different than what they had anticipated. And we, they, we were not happy about it. And on many days, the hard days, the truth is we still aren't very happy about it. Because Jesus, he didn't do what they expected him to do. (laughs) He didn't take that which was rightfully his. What was rightfully Christ's was a throne, was power, was dominion over all things. Jesus, that was what rightfully belonged to him, but he did not take that. Instead, he took that which was rightfully ours, that which rightfully belonged to us, which was death and separation from our perfectly holy God. Jesus suffered on our behalf. And then we learn that to become more like Jesus, now we endure suffering. We, and following in the footsteps of Jesus, it's through suffering and heartache that we become more like him and are sanctified and made into something similar to the image of what he is. In the midst of pain, we gain clarity 
as to the only sustenance worthy of the children of God, and that is the presence of God himself. Salvation through death doesn't sit well now, and it didn't sit well then. John the Baptist, the one who had announced the coming of the Messiah, began to have second thoughts because even John the Baptist thought this was going to go more in the way of dominion than it did. So we see John the Baptist in a jail cell saying, are we sure this is the guy? The crowds, they changed sides. The very crowds that gathered around Jesus were the ones that once they realized what the plan was, were disgusted by that and they changed teams and they're the ones that yelled crucify him instead. Peter had to be put in his place and called uh, son of Satan in order to get it through his thick skull that this wasn't going to go the way that he would have liked. For thousands of years, the people of God, those who came before us, had extraordinary dreams about how God would return and rescue us. And then, instead, a baby shows up. And this baby lives a humble life. And ultimately, it becomes clearer and clearer that this baby is going to die a brutal death so that many sons and daughters might be brought to glory. This didn't feel like victory. This didn't feel like glory. And this surely didn't feel like salvation. Yet Jesus continually tells his disciples, this is the way. This is the way that it's going to go. In other words, this is fitting. It's fitting. The one who created all things is the only one who understands the right and perfect way for man to be restored. And that way was then and is today through the suffering Savior. I want to clarify as we consider this verse that Jesus was not made perfect in the sense that he wasn't already perfect. He was already perfect. We can get a little commentary on this phrase by looking ahead to Hebrews 5.8 which says this, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus was and always has been perfect. But before his first moment on the earth, he had never suffered. When Jesus was born, that baby who was crying, who was crying because he was scared and, and, and all of a sudden had to labor to breathe and whatever other things might have taken place, that moment that he put on flesh and came and dwelt among us, he experienced frailty and suffering for the very first time. This is something he had not known anything of. He had never known frailty, weakness, or even temptation. We often think that human wickedness is the result of these attributes, that it's because of our frailty and our weakness. When we sin and do wrong things, we do so because we're frail and weak and tempted. Yet Christ took on these attributes. He became frail and weak and tempted, and yet he remained without sin. In this, we see that man's physical limitations are not the cause of our wickedness, but it's our very hearts. It's our sick hearts. We sin and we scheme because something inside of us is not the way that it should be. Yet this is not so with Jesus, the perfect God-man. In the face of suffering, Jesus remained unflinching in his perfect submission to the Father. As the stakes became higher and the pain literally increased, so did the resolve of our Savior King, who was obedient to the point of death, as Philippians 2.8 tells us, even death on a cross. Because of Christ's sacrifice, we have been brought into 
the very fold of God. Verse 11 tells us this. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are being sanctified, that's his church, all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. I want you to just bask in that for just a minute. I want you to stop and just let the magnificence of that statement soak in. The Father sent the Son to redeem his church so that we might be made family. Now, Jesus Christ calls us brother and sister. We have literally been brought into this family that we were told was going to take place. Romans 8.29 lays this out maybe even more clearly. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son that, we might, that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. This was always God's plan. That he would, might draw to himself one big, happy, glorious family for all of eternity. And the, author, the author of Hebrews reminds Christians of this plan of old by reading from Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8, where the verses that would have been mysterious then have now been brought to light fully in Jesus Christ. Dustin read verse 12 for us this morning. It says, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. What a glorious image to consider. Mark 14, 26 tells us that after the great supper, Jesus and his disciple, they sang a hymn together. When we sing here in the sanctuary, we follow the pattern set forth by Christ who joins us in singing praises to the Father. When we come together and we sing on Sunday morning, the reason we put so much intentionality into the songs, into how we do that, is because we are joining in a family tradition. We are following in the footsteps of Christ. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Verse 13, And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, Behold, I and the children God has given me. Notice this phrase. Within this phrase, we get a little glimpse into the heart of Christ. Behold, I and the children God has given me. This is an incredibly beautiful phrase. Christian, you are precious to Jesus. And you can hear that even in the way he speaks of you. And for that reason, he was willing to do all things to make us a part of the family of God. Not only has he made us family, but our king, big brother, has defeated our greatest enemies because we were not able to. Verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power, the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, were through, who through fear of death we're subject to lifelong slavery. On this verse, Charles Spurgeon has some pretty excellent commentary. It's that he says that, he writes this, We know that had he been only been God, yet still he would not have been fitted for a perfect Savior unless he had become man. Man had sinned. Man must suffer. It was man in whom God's purposes had been for a while defeated. It must be in man that God must triumph over his great enemy. Jesus Christ took on flesh and blood, and he endured all that we endure to the fullest. Jesus Christ experienced death, but before he even experienced death, 
He experienced poverty. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. He was dependent on the graciousness of others to even have the basic necessities of life. He experienced hunger. It's there in the desert that we see Jesus fast for 40 days and the enemy tries to take advantage of this opportunity. He experienced pain. Literally, he experienced pain to such a degree that a word had to be developed to describe the pain that he endured on the cross. He experienced many of our greatest fears. He experienced betrayal. For some of us, we have no greater fear in the world that those who we count on how they view us might view us differently, might betray us, might let us down. For some of us, if we're honest, that's our greatest fear is that we're going to be left alone, we're going to be abandoned, we're going to be betrayed. And Jesus experienced that to the fullest. At the end, nobody was left. His closest friends had betrayed him. Jesus experienced exhaustion. Stress-induced exhaustion to a degree to which I pray none of us ever even remotely know. And because we aren't carrying the sins of the world, we surely never will. And Jesus experienced even things that we don't think about, like family drama, you know? Like Jesus' own family didn't know what to do with him or how to approach him, and at times found themselves frustrated by his absolute devotion to the will of the Father. Jesus was willing to endure all of these experiences, and he did so without sin, so that he might be the perfect spotless lamb, a worthy and permanent sacrifice for the race of Adam that had fallen. Jesus Christ is the better and supreme Adam in every way. And the better Adam not only secured our redemption, but he defeated death and the devil. And I want to take a couple moments this morning to consider these two great enemies that our Savior has defeated. Number one, he defeated death. This verse tells us, if the gospel is not true, then there is no greater fear to be had on this earth than the fear of death. And thank God the gospel is in fact true. As humans, we don't like to talk a lot about death. It's really pretty fascinating to consider the links that we go to in order to avoid even having to think about it. We run all over the place, keeping ourselves busy, but seldom taking time to ponder the more sobering aspects of this life. Maybe this is the reason we keep ourselves so busy and so occupied, so that we don't have to thank or even accept the reality of our mortality. But make no mistake, death is a reality for all of us. I had, like, I had a pretty sobering experience this week. We had our men's DNA uh, group on Wednesday night, and we were, there was probably temptation to cancel because if you know, like the weather was pretty bad Wednesday night, but it just felt like, man, there was just a lot of heavy burdens, myself included, being carried. So we made the decision, man, we, I kicked on the four-wheel drive and we had uh, our men's DNA night. And it was just an awesome time. Um, there was just a lot of sharing, um, a lot of sharing about those heavy burdens. And I myself, I shared some things just on just insecurities as a parent and fears um, that I haven't really shared with anybody besides my wife. Um, and uh, I left DNA group just feeling like I had really been a part of something holy and good. Um, I felt lighter and it was, it was just, it was a really blessed night. And I got home and it was probably, it was like close to 11 when I got home and Shauna had made cookies, well, uh, so of course I had, was going to have one. And so I sat to have my cookie, and I just uh, pulled up the newspaper. 
And I, when I say newspaper, I'm obviously talking about my phone. You know that. And um, I pulled up the news, and I saw, like, that Ukraine had just been invaded. It had just happened. Like, I'm there in that moment because I happened to be up late that night, and I clicked on a video where you saw, like, you heard the bombs, and you saw what was happening. And it was like in this moment, I had just experienced this holy reality but then all of a sudden within an hour death and the reality of our demise just hit me in the face it all kind of happened at one time Wednesday night I tasted the beauty of the gospel lived out and then the bitterness of death quickly came and I was struck by how clearly the significance of the gospel implications stand out when they're put against the backdrop of our frailty and our death We are all, and this is what hit me Wednesday night, we are all a moment away from losing everything that distracts us from our frailty, whether that be a tornado, an inattentive driver, a disease, a war. Like, we can be arrogant to think that what we see on the TV couldn't be us, but but it absolutely could at any moment. Or simply age itself. We are a moment away from losing everything that we use to distract us from the reality of our limitations. And verse 15 tells us that the fear of death causes human beings to live as slaves. We live as slaves under this fear of death. We're held captive by every false promise of immortality that the world has to offer. Hebrews 2 opens. Brandon talked about it last week. By telling us to pay close attention to the word of God, pay close attention to the good news of the gospel, lest we drift away. And I have found that for many, this fear of death is what leads us to drift away. Because the closer we become to the reality that awaits us, the more inevitable it comes. I think that's kind of like what the term midlife crisis is. It's just, you get to a place in life where all of a sudden you realize, I'm not as far away as I was. I better make sure to get mine now in case, what if this promise isn't true? What if the hope that I've been clinging to, what if I'm not as hopeful about that as I thought I was? I better go ahead and make sure to get mine now. I've seen it over and over again. And the world leans into this because it sells power and momentary happiness as the means by which we can be gods ourselves, if only for a moment. So we inadvertently take the bait, even Christians do. And this leads us to Satan, the other enemy Christ defeated. He is the king of this kind of business. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking one to devour Yet if we're honest, his scheme doesn't always look the way that we think it does. He is certainly content to allure us, to to draw us away from the gospel with the sins of the flesh. He's, make no mistake, he is always content to do this, to to get man to depend on anything other than the gospel. Perverting the gospel is the great goal of Satan, no matter what scheme works best. Donald Gray Barnhouse once asked this question, in a newspaper article that he wrote, he asked this question, what would a city look like if it was completely ruled by the devil? While many of us picture Sodom and Gomorrah or Babylon or maybe whatever our modern day equivalent to that is, Barnhouse contends that a city completely ruled by Satan might look different than what we would imagine. And he describes it this way. Every lawn mowed and every bridge would be clean of graffiti No one would drive over the speed limit. 
Children would be obedient to parents. Marriages would remain intact. And every church would have a beautiful building where the basement doesn't leak every time that it rains. That's my added commentary. However, the gospel would not be preached in any of those places. If that is what a city looked like, Satan would be more than content to let that image permeate for as long as it need be. Barnhouse's point was that Satan is completely content with using whatever strategy is most effective and causing people to depend on something or someone other than Jesus Christ, even if that's just depending on yourself and your good deeds. Amongst some, he appeals to license, and to others, he appeals to legalism. Both get the same result. In some places in this world, demonic activity is so blatant and obvious and just a normal part of life that it causes people to fear and disobey God. In other places like here, it is far more strategic because we think we're more enlightened here, so it's a far more strategic thing to just allow people to question the existence of these realities altogether. He is, Satan is in the business of perverting the gospel in however way he can best. Our fear of death is stoked by the great enemy, and it causes us, causes people to live as slaves to fear. And we'll buy the fake antidote of every snake oil salesman who comes our way. Whether that's a gospelless preacher or a drug dealer, both are doing the same work. They're offering an alternative to the gospel, a way in which we can deal with our fear of death outside of Jesus. Yet Jesus Christ offers us a true freedom from fear and death. Death has lost its sting because of the bloody cross and the empty tomb. The Christian who dwells on the word of God and who makes the gospel his only claim is freed to live boldly and to look death in the face with no fear. For our big brother is our promised hero. Death doesn't get to bully you on the playground anymore because Jesus has been made yours. You have been brought in to the family of God. Verse 16 describes this. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, his very family. I want to close this morning by, with verses 17 and 18 and considering uh, their implications. As we close and look at these two verses, I want to introduce the concept of Jesus, our high priest. This will become a significant theme that we spend a lot of time talking about through the book of Hebrews. For today, though, I just want to introduce this idea, and I want to leave you with two aspects of Christ's priesthood on our behalf. Number one, Jesus is our faithful high priest. Verse 17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. One of the most common forms of heresy is when someone is unwilling to acknowledge that Jesus is both fully God and fully man completely. These were the kinds of heresies that led to the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And at that council, a creed came out that clearly identified Jesus as truly God, truly man. Perfectly God and fully man. Whatever it means to experience humanity, Jesus experienced it to the fullest. He is our faithful high priest. John Calvin once wrote, 
the Son of God, having clothed himself with our flesh of his own accord, clothed himself also with human feelings, so that he did not, wasn't different at all from his brethren, sin being the only exception. As you read the Old Testament, which is essential for understanding the book of Hebrews, you see that you'll see that on the Day of Atonement, the high priest represented all of God's people, and he was responsible for offering a substitutionary sacrifice on the behalf of all people. Here we see in these closing verses that Jesus became a man in part so that he could be our great high priest, offering the once and for all time perfect sacrifice. All other former high priests, all the high priests throughout the Old Testament, they offered only placeholders, just something to hold the spot for just a moment. The lamb that they would bring forward was always pointing to the greater lamb that was to come. Their sacrifices could not make propitiation for the sins of the people. This term propitiation, it refers to the satisfaction of God's justice. God poured out his righteous wrath on Christ instead of us. God being perfectly just, his wrath had to be poured out and he poured it out on Christ. And at the cross, his wrath was satisfied while his righteousness was upheld and vindicated perfectly. Without the satisfaction of God's justice, he could not have declared us righteous. Yet now he has. He is our faithful high priest and Jesus is our merciful high priest. Our last verse in today's text. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. One more uh, from Spurgeon's commentary. He was very helpful on this text. Spurgeon wrote this, Many persons are tempted, but do not suffer in being tempted. Hear this. When ungodly men are tempted, the bait is to their taste, and they swallow it greedily. Temptation is pleasure to them. Indeed, they sometimes tempt the devil to tempt them. But good men suffer when they are tempted, and the better they are, the more they suffer. Jesus is the greatest man, the greatest man who has ever walked the earth. And he found no pleasure in temptation. He never succumbed to its allure. And because of this, he is a high priest that is not only paid for our sin, but he is able to help us when we are tempted because he understands all that we endure and face. In fact, it is his very heart to aid us when we are tempted because we are his family. We are his brothers and sisters. He delights to be there in the midst of our struggle. No matter where you find yourself today, no matter what despair you are dealing with, no matter what secret sin and shame you are carrying, Jesus longs to help you. He has that which you need. He, has, he knows fully what you have. If, if you had a medicine today that could totally erase COVID-19 from the earth, you would not be offended at all that people come to you and want that medicine. You would want everybody to have it. It's you're, You've been given this thing. You want everybody to know about it and be healed. Jesus has everything his brothers and sisters need. And he wants nothing more but to give it to you. Jesus is delighted when we bring him our heartache and sorrow. That's what I experienced Wednesday night. When I just shared some realities from my own heart amongst the people of God, 
Jesus invited me to do that. And he met me there through his people. No matter where you find yourself today, Jesus Christ longs to help you. And as his family, we long to help you. Because more than likely, one of us is carrying a similar burden. You are no longer bound to the slavery of fear. It's time to let it go. Instead, lay your shortcomings and failures at the feet of the great high priest who is merciful. He's already paid for them, and he deeply desires to help you overcome them. It is his heart's delight to meet you in this moment and to give you all that you need. He does this through his word, through his spirit, and through his church. What a great high priest that we have. As we enter into a time of prayer, I want to leave you with this quote from Gentle and Lowly to help guide us into this time. It says this, As long as you fix your attention on your sin, you will fail to see how you can be safe. But as long as you look to this high priest, you will fail to see how you can be in danger. Looking inside ourselves, we can anticipate only harshness from heaven. But looking out to Christ, we can anticipate only gentleness. Jesus, thank you 